2: This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Katherine Shen. Applying for financial aid is no easy task, whether you're the parent or the student. And a new FAFSA form hasn't made things easier. The online FAFSA form, or the Free Application for Federal Student Aid, was recently updated, but it's come with a lot of glitches, causing headaches for students and parents alike. Today on Where We Live, we talk about what's happening with this form and how universities are responding. We'll also talk about how some universities here in Connecticut are working to eliminate student loans from their financial aid packages. And joining us today is Danelle Douglas-Gabriel. She's a reporter for The Washington Post. And we also have Eric Hoover, who's a senior writer with The Chronicle of Higher Education. Thanks, Danelle and Eric, for joining us today. And Thank you. And also for our listeners, you can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So, Danielle, I want to start with you. You know, before we start talking about student loans, we definitely want to get an update from FAFSA, you know what what's happening there you know because it sounds like there are so many people who are experiencing a lot of errors when they're when they're doing the application so can you give us an update of what's happening there
0: so the form is supposed to be a lot simpler than it used to be it used to be over 100 questions and through two acts of congress they were able to simplify it reduce the number of questions make it a lot easier but it's been besieged by lots of delays in rolling out the actual new form and it, while fafsa typically is out in october This year it came out at the very end of December, and when it did, I think a lot of families were expecting that they would have full access to it, but they didn't. It was only open for a few minutes at a time, half hour here, half hour there, And that is not at all what anyone had anticipated. So you saw on Twitter families just complaining at New Year's Eve uh, into New Year's Day about not being able to access the form, being stuck in waiting rooms, being uh, getting error messages. And this went on for a few days. And while it has gotten better. Uh, There are still families who are experiencing glitches with the system in terms of still seeing errors and not being able to fully complete the form. But I think the problem we're seeing the most in terms of filling out the application is for uh, students whose parents are undocumented and don't have social security numbers. The students themselves are American citizens, but they need their parents to come up with an ID, fill out their part of the form in order for them to fully submit their application. And they've been unable to do that. There is, a temporary workaround that the Department of Education is promoting, but it's not exactly the best solution because you still have to fill out the final form. And so we're waiting for the department to come up with a fix that would help that population because right now it's deterring them. And I'm hearing a lot of students who have a lot of anxiety about this. And that's certainly
2: not the way I want to start the new year, is being dropped from the waiting room applying for financial aid. Not at all. Yeah. So I mean, and, and with this experience, too, because, I mean, there's so many students doing that right now or waiting to do it. Is this just? proportionally impacting students of color and first-generation students? You know, What are you seeing there? What are you hearing from them?
0: From a lot of the high school counselors that I've spoken to, just kind of checking in to see how it's going, they are seeing a marked difference in a lot of their first-generation college students, many of whom are students of color, many of whom are low-income. They tend to be struggling the most with this form. Uh, again, a lot of the students whose families are undocumented, parents are undocumented, don't have social security numbers, tend to be minority students, tend to be Latino students tend to also be, you know, folks who are coming from the Caribbean elsewhere, and they're struggling right now. And what I think is most heartbreaking in talking to some of these students is they've, they've worked their butts off to get to this right. point, And this is the last thing they thought they'd have to worry about.
2: And it's funny, because when we were when we were researching, the, the for the show and then just reading all of the things about the experiences and you know, I I can still see the packet of the FAFSA application maybe dating myself here a little bit but it's like that newspaper material and I remember flipping open and I was like I consider myself fairly intelligent to a certain extent but I'm I remember reading it and being just being like what what am I reading like I don't know what I'm reading and so can you talk about, you know, what did this look application, new application look like and can you talk about, you know,
0: why was it changed? I mean, your experience is exactly why Congress tried to change <laughs> I figured. it, right? So I, I, too, remember that packet. And it was, it was a little daunting. If you were not familiar with thinking about your financial situation and what your parents' tax data and all of that was. And for a lot of students, you know, they were the ones filling it out. Parents were there to say, yeah, that seems about right, but they weren't doing it for them. And so having that experience, I think, is why you saw Congress say, we have to figure out how to streamline this, make it easier. So what's really interesting... Interesting about this new form is the Department of Education is working with the IRS to, if you check a box and say, yeah, you can take my tax data, it'll populate all of your tax data onto the form. So that reduces the time that you have to spend answering those questions, which is fantastic. I, I want to be, you know, clear that the people who are getting through through this new FAFSA are saying it is amazing. It is taking five minutes, whereas for some folks it had taken hours in order to complete it. So it is doing what Congress had intended as far as the final outcome and product. Right. (laughs) It's just the getting there is is the big problem right now. Um, And so we have fewer questions. Uh, we have more of the income that a family has uh, protected from the formula. What that effectively means is your eligibility for more grant aid and more scholarships increases as a result. So we'll see more students getting the Pell Grant, which is the federal government's largest form of aid that you don't have to pay back. This is the, the stuff you want, not the loans as much, right. but this is that money. And we're, we're seeing a lot of people being eligible for that for the first time as a result of the change to the formula.
2: And Eric, I want to bring you to the conversation, you know, Danelle just gave us an update on what's going on with FAFSA. But can you talk a little bit about the history of FAFSA? Because apparently this issue with it goes back way, you know, goes long before this academic year. Obviously, there's a reason why we're going through this change right now. But can you talk a little bit about the history of FAFSA?
1: Yeah, sure. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's important to um, consider two images of the of the FAFSA throughout history. And that is, I mean, um for all the reasons Danielle just explained um, it's, it's a, it's a gateway, right? It's a door that opens um, the uh, possibility of college for so many families, because it is um, a door that opens um, you to eligibility for uh, federal grants um, for work study and yes, for federal loans too. And yet all along it has always been widely seen and understood as an obstacle Um, for a long time time, it had probably way too many questions. And the more questions on a form, particularly for families who are disadvantaged, um, who don't have college-going know-how, um, the form was unquestionably has has long been seen as an obstacle, right? It can be tedious to fill out, particularly for families um, who need the most help. Those are also families in this country who often don't get much, if any, help applying to college or applying for aid. And so The rationale for fixing it came from in part a long-standing um frustration with um the number of questions the number of questions that seem perhaps unnecessary um at least for many families and so um for as long as there's been a fafsa there have been people trying to simplify it um and it's also the case that and we're seeing this once again right now here in washington dc where i live and work um you know it's a political uh animal um, right now, uh, problems um, with the FAFSA that are leaving many families frustrated um, you know uh, uh, under a democratic regime uh, is drawing a lot of um, attention, criticism, scorn uh, from folks on the other side of the aisle. And so among many other things, once again, we're reminded that uh, the debate over the FAFSA and how it's working or how it can improve um, is also getting into a political conversation. Um, And we're seeing that again right now.
2: And can you also talk about the literal infrastructure enormity that goes into this? Because I think, you know, we think about, oh, they're doing this overhaul, but I don't know if we really get into, you know, what does that overhaul look like? Because, like, I mean, Danielle mentioned earlier, so now you have an option where you, you, you check a box and your information from the IRS can just flow into your application, but I'm also assuming that takes a lot of background work. So can you talk about, you know, it's not just some tweaks that's that's uh, getting going into this. It's actually a complete overhaul and redesign of this online form. Is that correct?
1: That is correct. It has been, by all accounts, a massive undertaking. So this isn't um, anywhere close to as simple as, you know, going in, uh, tweaking some code um, and, you know, uh, polishing up your, company's website over a week or two. Um, This isn't just redesigning the online form, um, simplifying the online form. It's also gone hand in hand with a major overhaul, excuse me, of all the technological um, guts, if you will, of the FAFSA. The education department has said many times that the um, information systems that make the FAFSA run um, are are really old, if not ancient, perhaps antiquated, all of that, all of those information systems needed to be updated. And then even going beyond the overhaul of the form and everything you need to have working seamlessly, like the change you mentioned, how do you make it um, much easier for families now to pull in their data from the IRS? That's an easy, um, that seems like a seamless thing if you're using it perhaps, but to make that work, was quite an undertaking. And on top of all that, it isn't just that the education department is redesigned or revamped the FAFSA. They've also changed some key components of just the federal aid process itself and how those calculations work. So all that said, that's not very satisfying at this cold comfort uh, to hear about the enormity of this undertaking if you are a family who is right now stuck in limbo and not able to submit the form.
2: Well, and then you talked about sort of this this change in calculation in terms of how much financial aid you're able to receive. Uh, Danielle, I want to turn to you and talk more about a different kind of calculation because there's we have to talk about inflation adjustment. And you mentioned there's an increase in, in Pell grants earlier as well. So how how has that changed, and and does that affect students? You know, like does that make them want to apply more?
0: So one of the good parts of the law is that lawmakers try to build into the fact that, you know, there would be inflation. They certainly did not foresee the kind of inflation that we've witnessed in the last several years. But even in theory. thinking about how to adjust the formula for that, they were able to really increase the amount of aid that students were able to get. The more of your income that is shielded from the formula, the higher your eligibility is for more grant aid. So one of the problems, however, is that while the law was pretty explicit about adjusting those several years um, for inflation, one of the highest periods of inflation on record, the Department of Education neglected to do that initially. And, uh, you know, there were lots of groups that were saying, hey, I don't know if you guys noticed, but uh, those tables, <laughs> they need to be updated. Initially, the department said, okay, you know, we are way too late in the process. We're not going to be able to get to it till next year. But luckily, they changed their mind and decided to uh, fix and update those tables, which is huge, because that means that millions more students are actually eligible for the maximum Pell grant award. This is a little over $7,000 for the year and more students are eligible for Pell for the first time period. Unfortunately, what that means in updating and fixing that error, it's going to delay the time from which students applicant data goes from the FAFSA at the education department to their colleges that they have listed on the, on their uh, FAFSA. And uh, that. Effectively means that those schools are going to have a shorter amount of time to put together a financial aid package. But we are seeing schools react to that, which is great. We're seeing a lot of schools saying, hey, normally May 1st is our enrollment deadline. We're going to push it back two weeks. We're going to push it back to a full month um, in, in anticipation that it's going to take us a while to get this package together. And we don't want families to be in a situation where if they have five schools they're looking at and only two or three have submitted their financial aid component, they are unable to make an informed decision. So I think a lot of counselors I've spoken to and kind of college access folks really want to see all schools make that move. Not all of them have yet. And hopefully as they get a clearer picture of how much of a delay they will have in creating those packages, we'll see more schools giving students that kind of flexibility.
2: And, and Eric, with what Danelle just described, is, is that something that you are experiencing as well or you're hearing from parents and students in terms of, you know, how, how inflation or or even just the application process is impacting? How much aid is being received? Is that sort of also um, influencing their decisions on whether or not they want to apply for FAFSA? Uh,
1: yeah, I mean, I think I, I've talked only to families who, who who definitely want to fill out this form. Many sure. of whom are unable to. Um, but just like Danielle said, a lot of anxiety I hear it in so many phone calls um, I've had with parents and students. Um, this concern relating to this deadline question, what happens if some colleges and only some colleges, as Danielle said, have pushed back their May 1 deposit deadline? What happens if half the colleges on your list hold to that May 1 deadline, but the other half are going to give you to June, but you only have some of your aid offers um, in hand before some of your college's May 1 deadline um, is approaching? How do you how do you decide if you don't have your full allotment of aid awards? I think that's what I'm hearing um, the most anxiety about um, if, among families who have so far been able to um, submit that form. They're worried about the timing, um, you know, that some colleges will get them aid packages much uh, faster than other colleges. And where will that leave them in a world where um, not every institution, I don't think, is going to push back their deposit deadline?
2: Right. And I mean, we mentioned earlier that universities are responding to this and however they can. So, Eric, can you talk about how has the U.S. Department of Education responded to
1: this? How the U.S. Education Department has responded to this? Well, um, you know, they have been uh, rolling out um, some small fixes. Uh, there's a list of known technical issues that are um, hindering families, uh, if not altogether preventing them from completing the form. Um, a handful of those issues have been resolved. Um The main thing that the education department has been talking about doing over the last few weeks um, really is on the back end. And it's not to say that's not important, but they have um, stepped up and said they are going to offer um, assistance to colleges, particularly under-resourced colleges that might be especially um, impacted uh, this spring by the delays in getting all of that essential FAFSA data from the government to colleges. So the ed department is going to be um, sending in, you know, financial aid uh, experts, financial, you know, retired financial aid professionals um, to colleges um, that might already be, in many cases, short-staffed and perhaps ill-equipped to handle um, this real time crunch um, that is resulting from the del- all the delays we've seen in the FAFSA uh, rollout. Um, how much that's going to impact, really help or benefit families, I think that's um, a debatable question, um, and you know, like like Danielle said, this many families are still awaiting the, the promised fix uh, that will allow moms and dads who happen to lack a social security number to get into the FAFSA, complete it, and submit it. That was supposed to happen by the end of February, and as far as I know, it hasn't happened yet.
2: Right on, and we'll be continuing this conversation after a quick break. Coming up next, we're going to be hearing from Wesleyan University about its efforts to update financial aid packages by eliminating student loans. You've been listening to Danielle Douglas-Gabriel and Eric Hoover, who will both be staying with us. And if you're currently applying for financial aid or have experience with student loans, grants and work studies, we want to hear from you. Give us a call 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
1: I
3: like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's
1: life saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash elevating health.
2: This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. Have you applied for FAFSA this year? What was that experience like for you? I remember it being very challenging when I applied for it, and it doesn't sound like the process is any easier. Today, we're talking about financial aid, FAFSA, and student loans. And with us, we have Danielle Douglas Gabriel, who's a reporter for the Washington Post, and we have Eric Hoover, who's also with us, who's a senior writer with the Chronicle of Higher Education. So, Danielle, earlier we got an update on what's going on with FAFSA, so I want to pivot real quick to talk about how some schools are changing up the makeup of their financial aid packages, which is something that we've been hearing a lot, and that means eliminating student loans for some schools. And we have a few colleges here in Connecticut that's trying this out, so can you give us an idea of what that looks like? You know, what does it mean to to eliminate student loans? How feasible is it?
0: So, typically what that means is that the school will create a package where a student has a contribution, usually through their work earnings. Uh, They will try to backfill whatever gap with institutional aid, so scholarships coming from the schools, oftentimes through foundation uh, scholarships that are created for this exact purpose. But I do find that the schools that are able to do this tend to be smaller. They tend to um, not have really large populations of financial need, who have financial need, and there also tends to be income limits, right? So some of the larger schools, which are the Ivy schools uh, that do this, your parents can't make over, or household income can't be be over, say, $150,000 a year or so. But just because a school is no loan doesn't necessarily mean that a student won't borrow because oftentimes there is a family contribution. And for families who aren't able to use their own uh, earnings in order to uh, meet that demand, some of them will borrow. But it does create a situation where the school is trying to offer more of its own aid in, in order to mitigate the need to borrow.
2: And just want to take a quick moment here to introduce Jen Duncan, who is joining us. She's the director of financial aid at Wesleyan University, and Wesleyan recently eliminated student loans from their financial aid package. Jen, welcome to Where We Live today. Thank you so much for having me. So I want to start by asking, you know, can you tell us why did the university decide to eliminate loans? You know, what was the onus for that?
3: Yeah, it's a fantastic question. Um, prior to the announcement that we had this fall. About 50% of our students on financial aid were already um, not having loans packaged up front. Um, they were they were built into that that income limit um, that was previously discussed. And you know, part of the issue that we were seeing on campus was that there was a bit of this barbell effect happening where we had a lot of students here that were receiving fantastic financial aid packages. Um, They were really highly aided. And then we were seeing a lot of families that either weren't qualifying for aid or just chose not to apply for financial aid. And what we were seeing was the middle group, this middle income family um, was shrinking. And we really value socioeconomic diversity here on campus as one of the many means of diversity. And we felt that by eliminating loans, we could absolutely work on bringing this middle-income family back to campus and making the education process more affordable for them. And rather than giving them a loan up front, it's now just an additional resource that they can use to pay toward their parent contribution.
2: Well, Jen, you mentioned social economic diversity and how important that is to have a presence on campus. So can you Can you go more in depth and speak about the importance of that? You know, why is it important to have that kind of diversity?
3: Absolutely. I think having sort of this this melting pot on campus of of different backgrounds and including that as, you know, a financial background um, is incredibly important. I think that um, Wesleyan really values being able to have a sense of belonging on campus, regardless of your background. And... Making sure that the middle-income families here who really, really struggle sometimes to pay for college are well represented. That's really important to continue to have that representation here on campus.
2: And Danelle mentioned earlier, you know, the feasibility of of doing this loan-free package um, you know depends on the school usually it's smaller usually there's a, a bigger endowment say so can you talk about for Wesleyan you know how feasible is that especially in the long term and also yeah. you know without student loans can you talk about what do those loan-free financial aid packages look like now
3: absolutely yes yeah, so long term this was definitely a feasible solution um, it was something we've been talking about for a long time and we had really eased our way into it um, so for years we had had a no loan program but there were um, income caps. And over time we expanded those income caps, which allowed, like I'd mentioned, more than half of our students on financial aid to be part of this no loan program. And as we began to expand this, it became more financially feasible to expand it to all students receiving financial aid. Um, And the way that these aid packages um, appear for families is we meet full demonstrated need. And what that means is, say, the cost of attendance at Wesleyan to attend for one year is $80,000. And we are saying that a family can afford to attend Wesleyan for $20,000. That remaining $60,000 now is going to be met just with work-study, and then the rest is going to be in grant aid, whether that's through Wesleyan or through a Pell Grant or through state aid, they won't see alone um, in that makeup any longer.
2: And just want to share that each semester where we live and the talk show team here at Connecticut Public has a few interns to help us with our work and to share their experiences. And this semester, we're joined by Scout Raimondo, who attends Wesleyan, and she's a first-generation college student. So we asked her about her experience with financial aid
4: my dad is a native spanish speaker you know some of that jargon about like what financial aid jargon it's confusing and um so yeah it was a lot of me as an 18 year old trying to figure out how where what do i do with this with these documents what do i do with submitting everything on time i'm you know freaking out i don't even know what college is i don't know what i'm doing my financial aid package is Uh, so significant that it cuts that price down kind of I think right about now I'm paying like uh, a couple thousand dollars a year for college um, which is great right and part of you wants to say to yourself like to Wesleyan a prestigious school that has all these kind of accolades about it my education to them is worth you know 80 some thousand dollars a year to cover my expenses and that feels very flattering but then on the other hand you're like why does it cost that much I never want to talk too badly about school because, you know, there's a lot of like, oh, school, college, ah, that's tough. Um, And I know that it is in the process to get to this point wasn't simple um, and not straightforward and not clear and super mystified. But also now I'm in this really great space that I'm really grateful for. So it's it's kind of tough. The feelings are complicated.
2: So the beginning of Scout described her experience is actually very similar to my own in terms of, you know, what what am I looking at? What am I reading? So Jen, can you respond to what we heard from Scout? You know, are, are those sentiments that you've, hear, you've heard as well?
3: Absolutely. We hear these sentiments um, daily, really, in our office. And um, this is, you really feel for these families. And part of the reason that we do the really good work that we do in financial aid is to help these families. Um, And something that um, I'm really proud of, particularly at Wesleyan, is sort of the lengths that we go to in terms of being transparent about our costs, in terms of the transparency of the process. We try to be in constant communication with our families. We have incredibly dedicated staff here who will spend so much time working through this process with families just to help them understand all of these nuances of the financial aid process. Which, if this is your first time applying, if you're a first-generation college student, it's incredibly daunting. And I think helping sort of demystify this process is incredibly rewarding. Once families are able to get through this process, they're able to get that financial aid award in their hand, and they're able to make this Wesleyan education a reality is just incredibly rewarding. But um, it's not to say that this isn't a really daunting process to begin with. So we absolutely um, recognize how challenging this is. And we try and support these families um, in terms of making this education accessible as much as possible.
2: Danielle, do you want to respond to what Scott has to say as well?
0: No, I I think the transparency component is really helpful. Um, As a first-generation college student myself, uh, it was really difficult trying to figure out and navigate a system that neither I or my parents were familiar with. So it's great to hear that Wesleyan is trying to be transparent with families. I I do find that when schools are more upfront about what's baked into the cost, families tend to be more understanding. And it also gives students a clearer picture of where they can go and what they can afford beyond just seeing the sticker price for the school.
2: And we want to uh, dig into the transparency aspect and, and, and what is part of what you need to pay for in a little bit. But Jen, I want to also touch on work studies, because I think that's an area that has changed significantly. I mean, that I know of since I was in school. But can you talk about how work studies are part of your financial packages? Because that can be a great addition to the package, but you also want students to have enough time for their studies. Right. So can you talk about what that looks like today?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and with work study, it's something that every student who receives financial aid at Wesleyan, it will be built into their into their package. Um, we set an amount for every student and essentially because the Connecticut minimum wage has increased so much in recent years, it really boils down to maybe six or seven hours a week that a student has to work because really the the ethos here is that a student is a student first being able to work is supplemental to their education but it's not something that should take priority over attending classes and because it's only six to seven hours a week students are really able to prioritize their the social aspect um, the educational aspect everything that they need at Wesleyan and then just kind of build in their work study along the way Um, and work study is really designed to help students with you know your cost of books and supplies with those personal expenses that you need um so it's not something that they need to pay toward their parent contribution but it's really something that's um to supplement their education while they're here
2: and so we've been talking a lot about the challenges of the current fafsa application so i want to ask you Jane you know, how is that impacting things at wesleyan university yeah um <laughs> it's it's absolutely it's very impactful right now what
3: I will say is that uh, Wesleyan is in a really unique position because in addition to using the FAFSA, we also use the College Board's CSS Profile, which is um, a much, much deeper dive into a family's tax information. Um, it's essentially what we use to determine how a family's going to pay for college. The FAFSA for us is really just supplemental in terms of understanding what a student will qualify for in terms of a Pell Grant. But we have already been collecting the CSS profile since October. So students are going to receive their financial aid offers in the same manner they've always received them in prior years. They're gonna receive them on time. They're going to be accurate. Um, And it's really, I think a commitment to making Wesleyan affordable and accessible. By being able to use this CSS Profile application, families aren't in the dark about what they're going to be paying. They're going to know well ahead of time, Um, and once we do receive the FAFSA, it's really just their sources of aid may change, but what they'll be paying to the school will not change, and that's really important that we're able to go out the door with that information.
2: And Danelle, I think this question might be for you. One of our producers has shared with us that financial aid does cut about $50,000 a year for him from the University of Hartford um, as an out-of-state student to an in-state tuition price, um, also coupled with uh, academic performance grants. But he also shared that they hide a lot of fees as well within that. So you're kind of smiling, but we did talk about earlier, you know, if they if they have all that information already baked in, in in terms of in the beginning, figuring this out, that could be really helpful. So can you you talk about that in terms of, is that an experience that you're hearing as well? That is very common.
0: (laughs) You know, what a a number of colleges did in recent years, especially before the pandemic, was they would hold tuition flat. But then all the student fees would go up. Um, you know, fees for the gym, fees for the library, all these other kinds of costs. And not to say that there weren't justifiable reasons for some of those increases. It's just that, you know, while the college is heralding, holding the line on tuition, students are noticing an increase in all of these other expenses that are meaningful for them, especially for those who don't have a whole lot of financial bandwidth. So like I said, transparency is really important. I think you are talking to families who are trying to be financially savvy and be good stewards of their money. There is nothing wrong with being fully upfront with them about what your cost expectations are from one year to the next. I know that's not always possible for schools to predict what that might be, but they can give a rough, rough estimate based on historical trends, I think, more often than not. And families deserve to know that.
2: Right. And of course, we can't have this conversation without talking about the reality of the prices of college. Um, you know, it, it continues to grow. And, and Jen, it, it's great to have so many different options to support students. And it's, it's amazing to hear what Wesleyan is doing. But at the end of the day, college has gotten so expensive in general. Uh, Jen, is that something that is that a conversation that you're having with with students that are already in Wesleyan or students that are uh, prospective students? You know, what does that conversation look like for you?
3: Yeah, absolutely. That's that's the reality of of colleges everywhere is that the costs are increasing and really will continue to increase. Um again, what is what is great about an education at Wesleyan, and if you're on financial aid, is that the rising costs of education essentially aren't going to impact families at Wesleyan in the same way that it could happen outside of Wesleyan. And the reason being is because we're committed to meeting a student's need year after year, if the cost of attendance increases, then we just increase their grant aid along with it. Um, So they're not feeling that pinch of that cost of attendance increase. We absolutely uh, receive these questions and they're very real questions and very real concerns from families. But as families income, Uh, stays the same year to year, they're really not going to see a change to their financial aid award, which is, again, part of that transparency that we're really passionate about here.
2: You've been listening to Jen Duncan, who's the Director of Financial Aid at Wesleyan University. Thanks, Jen, for being on Where We Live Today. Thank you so much for having me. After the break, we'll continue with Danelle Douglas-Gabriel, who's a reporter for The Washington Post, and Eric Hoover, who's a senior writer with The Chronicle of Higher Education. And listeners, we want to hear from you too. Let us know what your experience was or has been like with financial aid. Give us a call, 888-720-9677, or leave us a comment on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Katherine Shen. We're talking about the cost of college today and the future of financial aid. And with us is Danelle Douglas-Gabriel, who's a reporter for The Washington Post, and Eric Hoover, who's a senior writer with The Chronicle of Higher Education. Danelle, earlier we talked about there's this idea that colleges have a sticker price, and but sometimes the price doesn't actually end up being the price that colleges cost. So especially uh, for students who might be the first in fam- in the family to go to college, Is Do students understand that that's a thing, that that's something that they need to look out for and ask for transparency?
0: I think they're starting to get that, right? I think a part of that is the work that the Department of Education has done over the last several years to work on something called the net price calculator and such, which gives you a general estimate of what you might pay at a given college based upon your family income and earnings and such. And I think that's important to know, right? Because... You can be in a class with 10 people and everyone's paying a totally different amount of money to go to that same school based upon their income and what kind of aid, be it merit or need base that they receive. And so the more colleges can be transparent, and there was a movement for a while to make sure that all of those net price calculators were uh, plainly visible on college websites so students could get a fairly accurate estimate of what it would cost. And so the more they could be transparent about that, the better not only will the students and the families be, but also the schools, because... Honestly, if, if you're a family and you see a $90,000 a year all-in cost, that's enough to send you running to the hills. But if you find out after you get an estimate through one of those calculators, if it's done correctly, that actually your your cost would probably be closer to 25 while that's still a lot of money, it may be manageable after enough uh, scholarships are built into that cost as well as any kind of grant aid coming from the federal state or state governments.
2: And also in our in our last segment we touched a bit about admissions. Can you sort of explain the latest on lawsuits against elite universities and and how they're getting these accusations that schools were considering student finances as part of admissions?
0: Yes. um, I have done some reporting on there's this one lawsuit that targets about 16 of really prestigious schools, including Yale, Columbia, um, Georgetown University and others, saying that they colluded together in order to set financial aid uh, pretty low for middle income students uh, as a part of this group that no longer exists called the 568 Presidents Group. And by law, there was an exemption that said if you are working together to work on financial aid issues, you could do so as long as it didn't depress financial aid for those groups. And students who sued these schools, former students, eight of them actually, and they got class action status, uh, say, actually, these schools were trying to figure out a way to make sure that kids who were uh, whose parents were donors, children who uh, came from um, money, were able to get in at the expense of the rest of us who couldn't necessarily afford to do that. And while a lot of th- people thought that the, that lawsuit was going to get thrown out, there have actually been ten settlements to date. Uh, I think topping 250 million or so, and that money is going to be dispersed out to the class of of, of uh, f- former students, which I think is over 200,000 students.
2: And and Eric, we've been talking about how there's a broader conversation here about the price of college, and it's only going up. and and asking students to make this big financial decision when they're, you know, 18, 19, 17 years old is is really daunting. So can you tell us what are you hearing from students in university about this conversation?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. Um, And it's complicated, excuse me. I have talked to so many families over the last few years, particularly since the pandemic. And many of them do have a sense that yes, long-term in general, um, their son or daughter having a college degree, um, particularly a bachelor's degree, will, um, will benefit them um, in many ways. Um, as opposed to, you know, in comparison with not having that degree. But what has struck me in so many conversations I've had with families is they, they're really concerned about the short-term impact of taking out loans and trying to pay for college, particularly in families where maybe there are two or three or five other siblings. Um, what is, um, what is my son or daughter's experience going to be like in that big name college that we were so proud that they got into, but what does it mean to actually attend that college and perhaps not have the same kind of experience that other students are enjoying? Because it's a fact, many, many students, even if they've received tremendous, generous financial aid packages, still struggle to make ends meet to cover day to day living expenses and that's why whether it's at a four-year big-name prestigious college or at any community college you go to in this country you will find without looking too hard students who are working a part-time job or two part-time jobs i've interviewed students who have three jobs on top of whatever aid that they're getting just to make ends meet so yes you can tell a family that hey 20 years from now your son or daughter will definitely be on, on you know better footing um than someone who only has a high school degree But I think there's much more concern about, like, what are the next five, 10, 20 years going to be like in the sort of financial story of our family? And that's really tough.
2: Well, and, and especially with, with what you just shared, I, I want to I wanna also share another comment from a listener, Elizabeth, on Facebook, who said financial aid is a very important topic. I wish there was more financial aid for non-traditional students. Uh, my daughter is a part-time student at a college in the Hartford area. Unfortunately, I am not in a position to help her out financially. She can only work part time while going to school, and it's very, very difficult for her it's going to take her eight plus years to get her degree because she can only take so many credit hours per semester in order to keep her tuition costs down so Eric you know especially with with what you just shared, you know can you respond to what Elizabeth has to say in terms of her daughter's experience? This is assuming this is not something new that you're hearing
1: no certainly not I mean and hey my my, my heart is w- with, heart is with uh, the uh, this family, um, it's a reminder that many, many um, Americans who we can call college students um, are, do not fit this neat, tidy description of, um, you know, an 18-year-old who's just out of high school um, whose mom and dad are, you know, largely um, paying for their college and they're going to live at a residential campus with, like, beautiful oak trees. Um, that That's great for some students, but that is not most students the vast majority of students fit all kinds of other descriptions um you know most of them are adults and um are are in a situation like this where um their college um process is going to unfold in a different way and it sounds like you know as is the case with so many students in this country attending college is not something that can be done lickety split in four years
2: And Danelle, there's been so many different kinds of conversations, I think, happening in in higher education. And I think the last couple of years, we've been seeing colleges eliminating or thinking about eliminating legacy emissions. So can you talk about how that might impact financial aid?
0: It is entirely possible because, you know, there's an argument that a lot of the legacy admits are able to pay full freight or close to full freight, the full cost of attendance. And some of that helps to subsidize the financial aid that lower income students receive. But we have seen reports recently saying that actually, no, there are, there are a lot of instances where those students are not paying as much as lower and middle income students are. So it's it's debatable as to whether the end of legacy admissions would have uh, the material impact on financial aid in the way way that some folks believe that it would i mean certainly it would go to an issue of equity uh if we are thinking about legacy at a a lot of of universities and also thinking about donor lists you know that is also a part of it for students whose parents can afford to contribute to the university some instances at some schools they are given a bit of a leg up in terms of admissions over students
1: who certainly don't have that kind of financial wherewithal
2: and also the biden administration oh eric did you want to respond to that
1: I was just going to add, um, I agree with everything that Danny just said, but I I think there's a wish and a hope um, on the part of, uh, a good part of the American public that, hey, if we could just get rid of legacy, strip all that away over the next several years, then admissions would be more fair. And I think it would be. But the next question is, if you didn't have a legacy consideration, would all of those seats that, you know, kind of uh, went to many legacy applicants in the past, would they be filled by lower-income students or even more middle-income students, Um, I think that's what people want to believe and hope, but there's no guarantee that if College X gets rid of legacy or is forced to do so, that um, all of these seats that that a legacy student might have taken in previous years um, will be filled by anything other than affluent students.
0: Agreed.
2: And is this a conversation that you're still seeing happening, Danielle, as you're doing your reporting? Is it, I mean, because it was so out in the open, I think, the last two years, I want to say, but I'm not seeing too much of it so far. But is that still sort of a hot button topic right now?
0: I think so, you know, in different parts of the country. I mean, certainly there are student movements trying to end sure. legacies at their at their own schools. But the other thing is that I don't know how large a percentage legacies actually make up in very many schools, right? And at, to Eric's point, if you were to end it, not not putting, saying you should or should not, I don't know if that means that those seats will be filled by a lot of middle and lower income students, because schools actually have to have the commitment that they want to go after that population. And if that's not top of mind, I don't think that's going to change if you end legacy one way or the other
2: we got about two minutes left here, but I do want to ask, You know, the Biden administration also just issued another plan to help federal student loan borrow- borrowers to eliminate debt, which is called the SAVE plan. Can you talk about what that looks like and is that impacting students?
0: Sure. So that is uh, an update to an income-driven repayment plan that had existed for a while. And it's probably, uh, you know, objectively the most generous of the plans that exist. And my God, there are so many <laughs> repayment plans and programs in, uh, in effect for the federal government. Right. But this one effectively increases the amount of money again that shielded, that shielded from the formula that says how much you have to pay per month. So for a lot of people, it'll reduce what they're paying per month. And for those folks whose monthly payment don't fully cover the principal and interest, the government will wipe away that uh, whatever leftover interest from one month to another. So that's a huge difference between uh, the existing plans. The other piece is for folks who didn't borrow a lot, say, or less, have been paying for 10 years, whatever remaining balance there is will be forgiven. That's a very new component. And we actually have already seen the Department of Education start to offer that loan forgiveness to people. About 153,000 people have received loan forgiveness uh, under SAVE by enrolling and having been in the older plan and paying for a while. So it can be a game changer for some folks.
2: And in 30 seconds, can you talk
0: about, are you hopeful that things are going to, you know, go smoothly and well for students and families? I've become an eternal optimist about these things. And so, yeah, I am because, look, this is a rocky rollout. There are lots of hiccups, but at the end of the day, the form is a lot simpler and a lot easier. And so I would encourage families not to be discouraged by this experience. And remember that you do have to fill it out every year while you're in college. And by next year... Hopefully all of the kinks will be smoothed out. Everyone will be used to the systems that are in place at schools as well as at the Department of Education. And it'll be a smoother ride.
2: Well, we're crossing our our fingers for everybody. You've been listening to Danelle uh, Douglas-Gabriel, who's a reporter for The Washington Post. Thank you so much for being on Where We Live Today. Thanks for having me. You're also listening to Eric Hoover, who's a senior writer with The Chronicle of Higher Education. Thanks, Eric, for sharing your experience with us as well. Thank you. I'm Catherine Shen. Today's show is produced by Tess Terrible. Our technical producer is Cat Pastor. Download Where We Live anytime on your favorite podcast app. And if you're applying for financial aid, much luck to you. And thank you so much for listening.